following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn in your Bible to follow in John chapter 5. I'm not reading for you this morning the initial miracle of Jesus in healing a man at the pool in Jerusalem. He's a 38-year-old man who had never walked. It was a great miracle. I'm more interested today that we would see the response to this and what was happening as Jesus was criticized and the remarkable and very bold ways in which he responded to that criticism here in John chapter 5. So I'm picking up right in the aftermath of the healing miracle, and you're welcome to scan the miracle itself and remind yourself what it was about. But I'll begin reading at verse 16 and go through verse 29, John 5. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself the equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is God's own holy word. I think it was about three or four years ago that I attended a reunion of some older relatives that was actually celebrating the 100th birthday party of an an aunt of my 
father, who's my great aunt, and uh, saw many relatives from that side of the family that I'd not seen for a long time. And when we were there at that occasion, around uh, 2010, I believe it was, my dad had already passed away for quite a few years before that, so those older aunts and uncles hadn't seen dad in a long time and hadn't seen me in a long time. So you can guess what all the responses were at this reunion. Michael, you look just like your father. I don't necessarily think I look a lot like my father, but I certainly was proud to have that kind of a comment be made because I honor my father. Just actually, I think it was a Sunday or two ago out here in the gathering space, my son Ben was standing nearby me and someone came up and said, Michael, your son looks just like you. (laughs) I I don't know what Ben thinks about that, but uh, what father wouldn't have pride to know that he's somehow reflected in his son? I studied John 5 where Jesus speaks clearly about his own likeness to God the Father. And it made me think of something in our American culture of recent days, and that is the famous father-son duo of two presidents, President George H.W. Bush and President George W. Bush. Now, I'm not interested in your politics this morning, but no matter what you might think of these men as chief executives of our country, there's one thing for which you ought to admire them, and they deserve admiration, and that is the remarkably strong relationship they have as a father and a son, and that they show in many different ways. I've seen this in interviews with both of them, speaking with open affection and admiration for dad for his son and son for his dad. Just not too long ago on the Today Show, they had a special piece with George W. Bush, recently retired president who surprisingly, I I don't know why I'm surprised, but I just thought something I expected him to do, has taken up painting as a hobby in his retirement. And and his daughter Jenna, who you may know is now a broadcaster, was actually interviewing her dad, and they were showing many paintings that he had done, including amateur portraits of different people, Tony Blair and other political figures. But it was very obvious, with a catch in his voice and obvious emotion, that the portrait that George W. showed his daughter that he cared about the most, and he, he spoke about how he had really tried to get it right, was the portrait of his dad. John 5 begins with healing of a lame man, 38 years old. Try to think of that, 38 years never having walked, always being laying around, spending your days more or less helpless, carted from one place to another, collecting a few coins or something to, to try to live on and the generosity of friends and relatives. And it was that healing that was being reacted to in the text I've read as the Pharisees predictably said Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. You couldn't do good to heal somebody on the Lord's day. Now, whether that was actually a violation of the real Sabbath or not would be a, a strong question, but they said it was. But more than that, it says their, their big criticism was that in doing this work and responding to it, he even called God his own father. Scandalous in their eyes. 
that the work God had been doing of giving life and healing and wholeness to broken people throughout history, Jesus said, I'm doing my Father's work. And honestly, you could say in the long evaluation of things, that was one of the main things that got him killed, calling God his Father. You know, we take it for granted that God should be called our Father But Jesus was the one who introduced the idea biblically. And the Gospel of John is one of the places where God as Father is a very strong emphasis, even more so than in other Gospels. Somebody has done the count on this. I have to rely on their math. But supposedly in John, Jesus addresses God as Father 122 times, and in Matthew, 64 times. So you can see a much stronger emphasis in this gospel of John on that particular subject. I have read various things over the years by skeptics and critics who want to debunk Christianity in one way or another. And people who have picked up this common theme, it's really sort of a dumb thing, but you still hear it all the time. When they say, oh, here was Jesus, the good Galilean peasant rabbi, teacher. He was such a good man. He went about doing good. And, and of course, he never claimed to have divinity. That was something that his disciples concocted, and Paul especially piled on and uh, put that fiction on top of this gentle rabbi who never said he was divine. It always just astounds me that people can make claims like that. Certainly, the person who says that never read the text that we read today, where Jesus speaks in the most bold of all possible terms in claiming his divine nature and his full unity with God. And this is only one of the places in this gospel alone where it is claimed and stated most clearly from the mouth of Jesus himself. So don't don't ever fall for that, that idea that someone else foisted the idea of divinity on Jesus. He claimed it, and he claimed it very clearly here. Now, there are people, of course, who say, well, I wish we could have some better window to look into the great mysteries of the Trinity. That's such a mysterious subject. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. How do we understand that? It's, it's so difficult. It's hard to get a hold of. And yet here, Jesus actually gave us a pretty good window to look into it. And as we look into it, we say our minds are still too limited to understand what he's telling us because these are deep things of God. And we can only try to follow where he teaches us here. But let us learn what we can in his teaching of this unique likeness between God the Father and God the Son here because there's no subject that's of any greater importance to Christian faith than this. Now, I have two main points only today, and the first one's longer and the second one's rather short. So just if you're keeping track, there's no point three. The first point is that you might hear Jesus say, there is a perfect functional union between God the Father and God the Son. There's a perfect functional union between God the Father and God the Son. You know, think about the work that you do or have done if you're retired or that you might look forward to doing if you're a young person in training. 
almost any kind of work you can think about, a, a career or, or, you know, a job with a shovel in hand or on the manufacturing line or in business, whatever, in medicine, no matter what you do, your job goes easier and is more pleasant if you have coworkers who are highly cooperative and pleasant to work with. If you're a manager, of course, you, you wish you would have an administrative assistant who, who can anticipate your needs, you know, not just make the coffee, but have things ready and, and figure out what you need and how to follow through and more or less work out your thoughts. A surgeon wants to be able to reach out his hand and have the right instrument put in that hand by a competent surgical assistant who knows exactly what's happening. And whatever you do, there's there's some sense in which, I mean, I certainly know the wonderful partnership that I have with my colleagues as pastors and other workers here on this staff and how much easier my work is because of that. Jesus here speaks about cooperative work that he does in tandem with his heavenly Father. If you look at verse 19, he's saying here, the Son does nothing. Now, he's referring to what he had done in this miracle of healing. The Son does nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. He was saying, look, I'm not another God. I'm not a rival God. I'm not the assistant God. I am God's partner. I work hand in glove with my Father. If they were musicians, they played in perfect harmony. And he subordinated himself, and yet it wasn't this subordination to his father that a slave would have to a, a grinding taskmaster. It was that subordination of a beloved son who delighted to do what he saw his father doing. And Jesus here, notice, doesn't say, I do things that are similar to the father. He said, I do exactly what the father does. I have no independent, self-determined uh, agenda that is going to ever set me at odds with what God, my Father, is doing. Now, to make claims like this are unmistakably claims to deity. He's saying, I and the Father are one. We act as one. We're one in essence, one in dignity, one in honor, one in authority, one in task. We think alike and we act alike. And you certainly would call to mind how this gospel of John began in chapter 1, verse 1, saying, the Word, Christ, was with God, and the Word was God. No wonder they do the same things. You know, people sometimes uh, depart into a, a fanciful way of thinking, and maybe you think, well, what was God doing he had to be doing something. What was he doing before the world was created? If God is eternal and existed before this planet existed, what was he doing? Now, I realize, of course, that's a theoretical question, and yet one part of the answer at least is possible. We can say one thing that we know God was doing before the creation of the universe was he was being a father to Christ his Son. Now that's very important because it's telling us that not only is God himself older than this creation, but the Trinity is older than this creation. God as Father, Son, and Spirit were a holy fellowship of sacred relationship 
one with the other before the world began. Some people might say to themselves, well, I suppose God created humanity because he was lonely and he needed somebody to interact with. Not so. The Father interacted with his Son and the Spirit in a holy fellowship that we cannot even begin to imagine. And then notice that verse 20 tells us here, as we're thinking about this perfect functional union, that this union was based on the fact that the Father loves the Son and out of love for His Son shows the Son all that He's doing. It was a relationship based on the deepest of affection and mutual respect. You know, I've run into some people, and please, I don't have anybody in particular in this congregation in mind. I'm stating this as a generality. But I've, I've run into people who work in family-owned businesses, and maybe they ended up in that business in some role that if they stood back from their life and said, is this really what I wanted to do when I went off to college or whatever? Well, not really. You know, I got out of college and mom and dad reminded me that they had paid a lot for it and and they could really use help in the family business and I didn't really want to work in it, but I said, okay, I'll try it for a while, dad. And, And 10 years later, there's the son. And he's not happy. He's doing something he wishes he wasn't doing and maybe he doesn't even get along with members of the family that well. That's Let's face it, that's the way some people are in family businesses. They're there because it's a meal ticket, and it's not necessarily where they really want to be. It's not a relationship of of mutual trust and delight day in and day out. Well, nothing like that was the case of Jesus Christ. He's telling us, I do the work my Father does, and that work is founded on the love, respect, and delight that we have one for the other. A wonderful book you might want to read sometime, those of you that are readers, is called The Pleasures of God by John Piper. And he has some shining chapters there where he talks about the fellowship within the Trinity. I can't begin to go too far in that direction, but you ought to read that sometime. The Pleasures of God by John Piper. It's not as though you see the God the Father had sort of wandered through a vacant universe and then one day bumped into this fellow Christ and said, oh, why don't you come and get on my team? No, of course not. The Son was the Father's Son, begotten of the Father from the beginning. They didn't accidentally somehow join together through circumstances or Jesus responding to a want ad. They have always been together. And their relationship is founded on the personal love of the Father for His Son. The Father poured out this love and delighted in the love of His Son. And it was a relationship that He prized. You need to think about that when you read in the Gospels those couple of rare occasions when people heard a voice, a literal voice at the baptism of Jesus and again on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the saying was just about the same both times. This is my well-loved son. Listen to him. God saying, I have poured myself into this son of mine. He's unique. He represents me. He has things to say that are from me. Pay attention. And then our passage here in John 5 
begins to suggest what this mutual work is that the Father and Son have as this functional unity that they perform. What work do they do? Well, it's actually named twice in our passage in verse 21 and again in verse 26. The work is that of giving life, bestowing life. The Father raises the dead and gives life. Verse 26, the Father has life in himself and has granted the Son to have life. They're in the life business, not life insurance, life. God's the one who gave life at the original creation. His Spirit breathed into man and breathed the image of God into Adam and Eve there in the books, in the letters of, or the pages of Genesis, both biological life and spiritual life. God's the one who gives life. He's called the living God. There's a good reason why often in the Old Testament he was named the living God, because why? The gods of the nations were dead gods. They were no gods at all. They were mute objects of wood and stone. They couldn't speak. They couldn't think. They couldn't bestow any benefit on anyone. They weren't gods. But there was a living God. Psalm 36, 9 says of Jehovah, with him is the fountain of life, the origin of life. And so we have here in verses 21 and 26 this, this thought that the Father and the Son give life to whom they will. And we know that's talking about spiritual life, lasting, eternal life. And Jesus went on, of course, to say things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets the life, if I may paraphrase, no one gets the life of God except through me. I'm the resurrection and the life, he said. God, the Father, the Son, and yes, the Spirit, who's not emphasized as much in this passage, but certainly part of the triune working, are partners in the life business. And they hold the exclusive franchise. That franchise is extended to no other. The business that they're bound together in is life. Hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote about the triune God in one of his hymns and said, He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The saving work of God awakens us from deadness in our selfishness, in our rebellion, our pride, and our unbelief and gives us an eternal gift of life. The Father and Son cooperate together to do that. That's the main point I want to bring across from this passage today. But now a second thing. After you've seen this functional union between father and son, my second point says, and looking mainly at verses 22 to 29, God the Father delegates his work of judgment of mankind unto Christ the Son. There's another work here. It's an extension of the work of life, and it's called judgment. And very interesting, I mean, Jesus' claim here could not be more bold because he's saying, he's already said, I'm doing the same work the Father's doing, and now he's saying, I am going to be doing some work that the Father has actually given me and nobody else to do. You see how bold he is? You know, these Pharisees said, why, he even calls God his Father. You got that right. More so than you ever imagined. He's saying, 
I will carry out some work that the Father has given only me the privilege to do. The Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to his Son. You see, the transferring of dead souls onto life is a work of the Father and Son together, but now comes this work called judgment. Now, most of you think you know what judgment is. You picture a judge in a black robe like I'm wearing sitting on a bench and you come in and you're accused of going, you know, 95 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone and, and the judge has got to decide something. Guilty or not guilty? What's your sentence? You think that's what judgment is. Well, that's not altogether wrong. And in fact, the end of this passage certainly has that note about it. But we think that it's broader here, that, that the work of judgment given to the son is more than just judging a case in a courtroom. It it has the broader implication of administration or management or government over all the affairs of humanity. And we believe that the Bible teaches in other passages we could go to that Jesus Christ has been installed as the king and the ruler. Remember even in prophecy back in Isaiah, it said, and the government will be on his shoulder. He's going to be a governing ruler. Romans 2 has an interesting passage, Romans 2.16, that says, God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The secrets, the stuff that you think you've got locked away that nobody even knows about. God is governing over that and knows that. And by Jesus Christ is a ruler over your life in great things and small. We're studying the book of Daniel on Sunday evenings lately, and uh, I remind you that Daniel had a prophecy, Daniel 7, verse 14. That prophet was given a vision of, quote, one, this is for the future, one who is like the Son of Man, and to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And that future kingdom will never pass away. What a wonderful prophecy Daniel had to speak of Christ way back, hundreds of years before Christ came along. And you know that this rule of Christ, this government of Christ is active today. He is the ruler. Now, there are people who would doubt that. They would say, well, I don't see it. You know, it seems to me like Congress is in charge or the Supreme Court is in charge or Vladimir Putin's in charge or somebody else. I don't see Christ in charge, but he is. He is the chief executive officer of history and of human affairs. And there are times when we see this clearly and many times when we do not. But the Bible declares it to be so and says here in a verse like 28 of our passage that there's going to come a climactic event, a a final hour in history when that rule is going to be absolutely clear because he will appear as the judge at the end of history. And he will bring either a sentence of condemnation upon those who have not believed or the blessing of, you already have received my life. Come into my kingdom and come into the intimacy of my family. So you cannot say, you see, I'm a worshiper of God, and, you know, all this Jesus stuff kind of gets me messed up. I, I, just keep it simple. I just want to worship God and call Him my Father. You can't do that because we're being told here that the Father and the Son 
do the same work, and as a matter of fact, some of the work is actually delegated entirely to the Son. And that He has completed the work of atonement on the cross, and the Father has completed the work of His resurrection and His glorification as He ascended to heaven. And that rest of the work that they have planned, the part that hasn't yet been seen but is told that it will come, will come just as surely as the things that have been done already that were predicted beforehand. Jesus is saying here in verse 24, which I think forms a perfect conclusion to this passage. Let me read that. He says, Truly I say, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has now eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Is passed now. You see, the one who's going to come under condemnation is held until that final day when condemnation will fall and he cannot escape it. But Jesus says, you want a definition of a Christian? It's someone in whom God's redeeming work is already completed. He's already passed from death to life. The NIV translation says he has crossed over. I like that. Very graphic. He has crossed over from death to life. God's work has been completed in the Christian, and there's no surprise as to what will be revealed in him at the final day. Folks, one thing this passage should tell us is that we can never put too much emphasis on Jesus Christ. He is the center point. He's the epicenter of everything God is doing. The love that the Father had for the Son is the birthplace, the womb of the love that He has for the world. The love that God shows for you and me is overflow of love passing from Father to Son and on to us. He is one with the Father. Colossians 2.9 calls Him the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. Colossians 1.17 recognizes his governing role and says, in him all things hold together. You know, that's what a leader does, kind of holds things together. If you want a description, what do Supreme Court justices do? They hold together the system of laws, at least they're supposed to, the system of laws of the country. The president supposedly holds the country together in one direction. The legislature, that's a definition of governing. He holds all things together. Everything God does, Jesus does. He's the center. He's the giver of life. He's the coming judge. He's the present and reigning king. You cannot give too much attention or too much glory to Jesus Christ. Sometimes evangelicals are criticized. Oh, you people, you're always Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Well, let me tell you, if there's any one word that's going to come out of our mouths frequently, that's a good word, to give glory to Jesus Christ. I feel great sadness for the tragedy of the man or woman who calls themselves Unitarian. You see, the Unitarians came along in the early 19th century, and they said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We just, all this Trinity stuff, we can't have it. God is one. God is singular. Jesus is not divine. The Holy Spirit is not divine. That person's a fool. I don't know what else you call a person who can't read God's Word. You're a fool. Missing that much of what the Scripture teaches. Cutting John 5 out of your Bible. 
If John is singular rather than three in one, he's not a parent, and he doesn't have a son to love. And if he doesn't have a son to love, then the most essential relationship required for him to act in love is absent. There's no fellowship of father, son, and spirit in which they can exuberantly delight in one another and cooperate together. I'm sorry. The Unitarian faith is not only unbiblical, it's a joyless thing. If our faith and worship is Christ-centered, it's going to be God-centered all the time. Jesus said here in verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Just flip that over and say, by honoring the Son, you are honoring the Father. Christ is the center of praise and of the work of God. Jonathan Edwards thought deep on these things, and he said once, the infinite happiness of God the Father consists in nothing other than continual enjoyment of his Son. Dwell on that one for a while. We meet God the Father by knowing his Son through faith. When we by faith trust exclusively in Christ as he was crucified and risen and glorified, we are seeing right into the heart of God and the work of God. And as we bow before Jesus Christ and that finished work, we are putting ourselves in position to experience that same Father love that the Father poured out on His Son. And He will love and adopt you as well, that you might be His son or daughter for all eternity. What a great thing. Great is our God. Great is His Son the Lord Jesus. Our Father, these are thoughts that take our minds only as far as they are allowed to go in their limited way. But thank you for the boldness of Jesus in counteracting this attack upon him. And he was not afraid to claim things that show us how he was one with you. Father, may we more and more be in love with Christ the Son that we might obey him, bow to him, exalt him, and so know that we are being aligned with you as well. We praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.